0: This show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebounded Safety. Today we're talking all about fire safety with a guy that we've spoke to before, but has lately become somewhat a bit of a celebrity. Let's jump into the intro and I'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety crushing the stereotype brought to you by risk Blue. what's up peeps welcome back to rebranding safety rebranding safety is the youtube channel and podcast not padcast podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin so if you're new here hit that subscribe button and the bell and all those buttons that do magical algorithm thingamajigs so this week we are talking all fire safety we're talking all what's going on after Grenfell. have we still not sorted that that's basically what we're talking about our guest today was one of our early 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 guests that we had on the podcast if you remember his name is matt hodges long and we talked all about compliance and what that looks like for insurers and through this software and just staying on top of everything and he runs a company that, that manages the that process for you and makes it so much easier um since grenfell he has been kind of passionately really getting deep into this um behind the scenes and looking at what dame Judith hackett said and looking at the inquiry and really trying to provide solutions so his company have come up with like the building safety register and and they're really just trying to make a difference in this space and because of this Today's guest has been on LBC, the very, very popular um, debate radio show. I suppose you could call it, uh, talking to the really time, big time people that there is there. So we touch on that a little bit as well, and um, and majoritatively we are talking about fire safety. We're talking about the fallout of Grenfell. We're talking about where we are now and the kind of mess um, that we're in, and um, and where. We're pulling from kind of Matt's current experience and then my past experience from working in housing and healthcare and predominantly fire safety for like the last God knows how many years. Um... I will caveat that to just say, I really apologize for my audio. I tried to fix it as much as I could. Um, I'm not really sure what happened. We did record this a long time ago. So I think it was before I moved over to the new system. And we were having a lot of problems with the old system just before we moved over. So uh, I think it was just a bad day. So I apologize for that. Matt's audio is all right. So hopefully it's tolerable for the rest of you. Before we jump into the podcast, I just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. Our official rebranding safety sponsor is Paradigm Human Performance HSE subscription service. This is the perfect solution for those SME, um, business owners, Operations directors, whatever you call yourself. Maybe you're even a safety professional for those small, medium-sized enterprises. And sometimes you can feel like you're spinning so many plates and safety is just a bit of an unaffordable luxury, um, which is normally fine for a long time. Um, but Paradigm truly believe that the cost of building a solid foundation of legal, regulatory, and industry compliance and embedding that into everything that you do should really never be on the reach of of an of a sme or the employer and their global mission is to make workplaces safer more respectful healthier and places where workers are recognized for their subject matter expertise and recognized for their contribution because worker safety has got to be part of your dna this organize, if your organization is going to thrive, Paradigm Human Performance have a way to make this reality through their HSE subscription service. So hopefully this is the right thing for you. I feel like it is. They start from just £99 a month. I'll put their website in the description, their phone numbers, their email address, everything you need to get hold of them. And if you're still not sure, you can go to their website and just sign up to their weekly webinar, which frankly is amazing. And uh, and you can try before you buy, so to speak. You can get a sense of the, the Paradigm team you can see trees are every now and then and just get a sense of of what they're doing and don't forget the paradigm of human performance uh, human and organizational performance experts so this isn't your bog standard compliance system this is compliance this is basic foundational safety contemporary safety with hop with safety innovation woven into it is that's just what you want really isn't it it's the you're skipping out all that bit in the middle where you have to unlearn what you've done for the last 10 years. So check them out and uh, I'm sure they'll be right for you. We wouldn't have uh, aligned with them if we didn't think that they were right for at least some of our audience. So go check them out. And finally, just a message from my company, Project Meletium. Project Meletium is the professional development community. This is a community that we wanted to build. Me and Colin Nottage, who runs an amazing podcast called The Interest in Safety Podcast, we combined together, God, so long ago now. We've been running about three months. We've got a, a massive stream of members coming in, and they're all absolutely loving it. You know, some members are telling us that this is the best thing after years and years of trying to get some support and some help to to grow and, and become a better professional, this is the thing that they felt they were missing. And that's exactly what we were trying to do. It's a mix of weekly community calls where we help you develop and we solve we solve problems together um, combined with a monthly book club and a quarterly wagon wheel, which essentially is just like a mastermind event. We have a keynote, we have workshops from that keynote, and then we have one of our own members talking about their challenges Uh, through the form of another keynote. And then we do workshops to help that. We feed that member back um, some support and guidance based on our own experience. And then we finish off by setting some goals for the quarter. We've got so much more coming as well. We are growing quick and we're developing our offering. So go and check out www.projectmeletium.com or drop me a message and I'll get you on a call completely free of charge so you can try it before you buy it. Without further ado, let's get into my conversation with the legendary Matt Hodges-Long. I mean, we spoke such a long time ago, and you've literally just kind of shot into the echelons, the upper echelons of, of society, and it'll be good to just kind of talk about a couple of things. It'd be good to kind of talk about you know where you've where you've been and what, what you've been doing since we last spoke uh and then it would be really interesting just to kind of just get into the crux of all this stuff that's going on in the world of fire safety cladding grenfell oh god it's there's loads of stuff isn't there fire consultation uh i think that's finished now is it and then you've got the, yeah, the safety bill and it's just it's all over the place and yeah yeah okay um, well
1: it's just just
0: you're pretty, much a, you're pretty much a celebrity now, Matt, aren't you? Going on LBC.
1: Well, I wouldn't say celebrity, <laughs> because it's always it's always crushingly disappointing at how short the interview is. <laughs> so I normally end up with pages and pages of notes. I mean, this is some of some of my preparation for my last LBC interview. Yeah. Um and then you end up with 30 seconds about something you didn't expect to talk about. So I mean it's it's quite it's good fun doing live radio, though. I mean, that's kind yeah. of jeopardy of not knowing what Nick Ferrari's going to say. Because yeah. there's no briefing. There's no... You kind of know the broad outline, but they don't give you questions beforehand. You just get pitched straight into it, live radio to make an absolute tit of yourself if you're not it,
0: careful. It must have been scary. I've listened to LBC. I don't listen to it much anymore because it just makes me angry. But um, Nick Ferrari... Poor. And, and to be fair, the other one you had was uh, Sheila Fogarty, wasn't it? Um, mate they're they're probably the two that I would actively avoid. like they're really scary people <laughs> like I'd have been crapping myself. What was that like when when uh, w- when you were like waiting to be put through? Well you
1: you're you're lined up so that so the the, the interview I did with with Sheila Fogarty was on, over the phone mm-hmm. So you're listening while you're on hold, you're listening to her speaking. And then all of a sudden, they say, putting you through now, and that's it. Sheila's talking about you, and you, you're you introduced, and you, you talk. So that was absolutely fine. Whereas the Nick one was – was I was pre-booked, and it was over Skype. Okay. So the night before, they were meant to be calling me. They, so Nick Ferrari has a night producer. I don't know whether I'm giving away secrets. I shouldn't give away here. But they have a night <laughs> producer. He has people working through the night, preparing his show for the next morning, because it's the flagship show. Right, yeah. The, uh, the breakfast show. And – It got to about 10.30 the night before, and they hadn't called me to set up Skype. So typically it's sort of all last minute, so we left it until the morning, early the next morning, and we got it all set up. And then I was due to go on air, and then he decided that he was going to push the segment later on in the the hour. Oh, really? To the next hour. So then they called me and said, look, we're really sorry, are you available? So literally you have to block your diary out because you don't know when this is going to happen, and apparently Nick is legendary for... um, changing the running order Mm -hmm. um as is his wont. um but no it's good fun so i'm there talking to him over skype on the wall of the the studio and then they video it and and uh yeah it was it was it was good fun it was um i think the more of them you do the more relaxed you get about it in a way yeah and i think I, i don't think i'd want to be on sort of as having to defend myself. I was I was invited to be there to talk about an expert. So and I've been involved in the story, working with them behind the scenes to sort of build that story. Mm. So I was very much on their side, if you like.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. But you never quite know whether there's a question that's going to come out of left field and you've got to answer it live. Mm. Um but it's it's all part of the the jeopardy. I've done some BBC work recently which was which was oh, good awesome. up in Milton Keynes. Um and there's lots going on behind the scenes. So I think a lot of the, the media work I'm doing now, I'm not actually in front of the camera or on the microphone. It's sort of very much expert information behind the scenes because I, I don't want to be out there all the time just gobbing off about things. You know, I think a lot of the power of it is in working with these journalists on the stories. And then I think hopefully when there's a really big one I need to be overt about, then they'll say yes. Mm. So that's the way it's working at the moment.
0: Cool. Well, that's awesome. We well, still you... got time
1: for you. Still got time for you, James. And the that's, that's
0: it, mate. Yeah. I, I, when I when I messaged you, I thought if he says no, I'm too busy. Shit's gonna hit the fan because I'm gonna say, hey, hey. You years ago we had you on before you spoke to Sheila Fogarty, and you were big time. Don't forget <laughs> you. Don't forget the grassroots. <laughs>
1: no, I'll, I'll never forget you, and I think it's really important that people remember how they got there you know so always yeah. always remember the people that have been good to you but no i mean i i, I wouldn't uh I, I i think when i start actually earning money from doing media then i'll stop talking to you but at the moment it's all <laughs> <laughs> it's all for free <laughs> i don't see that changing because I've, I've definitely got a face for radio so
0: you're not going to send me an invoice after this are you no no no
1: <laughs> it's all good it's a freebie
0: so, so talk to me about how how you how this stuff has come about because it's all come around that that one uh, not the one piece of work obviously there's a hell of a lot going on but that that one issue that's all stemmed out of Grenfell and talk to me like mm. the work you've been doing there kind of take us through that journey since the last time we spoke to you and and how you've come now to be working with the BBC and so on and so forth. I, I suspect that's quite a long story, but uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I think obviously we've been we've been working for the last. Five or so years selling risk management software to anybody that wants to buy it Mm -hmm. um, at scale, and looking at different markets and working in education, healthcare, and uh, financial services, etc. But this was the post Grenfell was the first issue where there was proper engagement, if you like, in the subject because let's face it, it's pretty boring. So it's not really a mass market kind of discussion topic, managing risk Mm -hmm. or compliance or, or whatever it is it's very sort of behind the scenes whereas with after Grenfell this kind of spilled out into the sort of the consumer arena where you've got thousands if not millions of leaseholders that are stuck in buildings that may or may not be safe um suffering from a lack of information from managing agents and freeholders and having mm-hmm. problems with insurers and, and really there's just this massive need to pull everything into one place for everybody to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite what risk they're at so that really sort of fitted well with what we did as a business anyway but banging on the door of government trying to get them to listen wasn't working so last june so june before last um we set up the building safety register as a as a brand
0: oh excuse me sorry
1: so we set up the building safety register as a brand um and almost went direct to consumer with it and sort of started engaging in the conversation with residents about building safety. And that just got us on the radar of media and people started asking us questions and saying, oh, you know, I'm writing this magazine article, could you just give us a quote on this? Mm. Um, and the, the radio stuff, i trying to think how that came about. I think it was just referred in and I think Rachel Venables from LBC called me and said, oh, it's Rachel here from LBC, I just want to ask you something quickly. And we've just ended up chatting to each other and sending whatsapps and discussing stories and things like that and now i look at it and there's all this media stuff going off. of stuff going on with which and bbc and lbc and um various news outlets and regional news um and it's just kind of happened really but i mean it's not as though the phone's ringing off the hook with you know we need your comment on everything you know you still have to work on it and things take mm-hmm. time and there's a what i've learned from it is when to get that sort of three minutes on the radio we did a story recently about fraud in EWS1 which is the external wall survey which we might talk about but that was probably six weeks worth of work
0: Mm. that
1: LBC and various other contributors including me put into trying to get the information together for that story and it ends up being three minutes out of 24 okay they repeat the three minutes but still Mm. it's a relatively short amount of content so um it's quite amazing, actually, how much time the news agencies will put into researching and developing a story. I'd never really considered not being a media person, quite how much work goes on behind the scenes mm. and how much of it doesn't get to air for legal reasons or you can't triple, quadruple check the facts, so therefore it doesn't go to air.
0: Mm.
1: So, it's, it's it's yeah, it's been a real eye-opener to see how that works, being a humble software risk management <sighs> weird person <laughs>
0: <laughs> so talk to me what the, the talk to, tell us about the building safety register that and that what you've done with that then
1: so really that's pushing for a digital system of record or a single version of the truth for every building uh for all of its fire and life safety information and really it's the precursor to dame judith hackett's um golden thread concept that came out of, of grenfell um hers is quite complex in nature and it's looking at building information modeling and lots of data aspects around the building and, and we, we sort of looked at that dumbed it down and said well if we've got thirteen thousand buildings that already exist um mm-hmm. how are we going to start building that for the legacy um, so let's start pulling things together you know do you have a fire risk assessment if you do where is it mm-hmm. um where did you last do the electrical inspection where's a copy of it where's the evacuation strategy for the building etc etc um, and then working with companies and saying you've got to do that hundreds of times within a portfolio, so whether it's a housing association or a private managing agent, whoever it is, um, start doing it, start gathering the information, start permissioning that to residents so they can see some of it, which is ticks the Hackett resident engagement box. So there's lots of elements of the Hackett review, which is coming through into to legislation through the Building Safety Bill, that... Are all ideas, but nobody's really got the technology to implement them yet. So we're sort of mm-hmm. saying, well, we have, come and talk to us. There's mm-hmm. bits we need to build onto it, but that's really essentially what it is. It's sorting, it's it's the same as when we spoke last time. It's that evidential records management and it's about consistency. It's about, I know you don't like the word, but about compliance. Um it's about doing the basics well. Um, and our view sort of is that if that sort of Rising tide floats all boats. If we can make all of these buildings a bit safer quickly, then everybody benefits from that mm. improvement in building safety. So that, that's that's what we do. But it's it's how we sell our software to housing associations and, and managing agents. But um, it it really helps the residents as well because they now know that they can ask for information and hopefully their provider will share it with them.
0: Yeah. it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing when you i think i think engaging with residents is something that's lacking in that industry uh in the housing sector massively i think i think people do it but I, i wonder whether it's kind of like valuable engagement if you know what i mean um and, and whether it's engaging across all the different diverse kind of tenures and, you know, groups of people that are in different types of properties and so on, you know, you know as much as I do. Like housing is an absolute just nightmare sometimes of, of how it's set up and it's an absolute mess. But having, being kind of open and honest with, and, and providing fire risk assessments and stuff like that is... To, to residents is is I think really important. And I was quite pleased to see that in the in the hackett report. But it does bring like just some real complications. And I speak from my own my own experience here. It's like you if if you get a good fire risk assessment, if you get a bad one, this probably doesn't matter, but if you get a good one, there can be some really technical documentation. Like a good fire risk assessment could be really technical. Um and you're giving that to people that are not really technical. And it's, I'm um, wondering how, I don't know whether you're engaging with like the end user, like the resident much, but, or, or even from talking to your customers, like how are people kind of dealing with that? Like they're giving it to the resident, but like what's the feedback off the back of that? You know, what are residents feeling like, do they understand it? Is it creating a mountain out of a molehill or, or is it all good or is it a mixed bag? Do you know what I mean?
1: It is, it is mixed. I mean, I think the, there is a lot of worry that this is going to be another stick to beat us with from mm-hmm. a landlord's perspective or a building manager's perspective. And then there's others at the other, thing that's at the other end that say, look, we're not perfect. We're open. Yeah. We explain this to our residents. We publish these to them as a matter of course. Mm-hmm. And we explain, and we do have to manage expectations that putting that fire door keep shut sticker uh, on a riser cupboard somewhere is not as high priority as making sure our AOVs are, are operational or, or firefighting lift is, is maintained mm-hmm. or whatever it is. So there's there's different rankings to it. And I think generally um, what I would say is that most residents have far more capacity to understand these things than, than most landlords would probably choose to think. Mm. Um, I mean, for example, the, the building safety bill consultation is finished and we, we launched a, a database today where we've analysed the written consultations and 62% of the written responses to that new piece of legislation came from leaseholders.
0: Wow. And
1: they're they're really well-informed, I mean, generally. I mean, one of the things that has come out of this whole issue post-Grenfell and cladding scandals, building safety scandals, crises, whatever you call it, is the level of technical competence of um, residents that live in flats Apartments is just you know, they could they could talk all day on approved document B and uh, compartmentation and cavity barriers and different types of insulation and EPS and render systems and all sorts of things. You know, it's just unbelievable that because they've had to learn. And what's actually happening now is where I think where landlords or government could have um you know bullshitted people and blinded them with science, um, they can answer most of the questions themselves, or if they can't, they know the experts to go to, to say. I've been told this about my cladding. They'll go to one of the country's leading cladding experts that they've met on Twitter and they'll send them a photo and the, the expert will come back and say, no, that's wrong. Mm. Um, so the whole sort of social media age has moved into cladding and building safety now. And you've got this super mm. um, informed group of, growing group of people that have got amazing press contacts. I mean, you know, this this story has run in the Sunday Times, I think for the last five weeks on the trot that's been Wow. Half a page or a full page or two pages about this issue in the mm. Sunday Times week in, week out. BBC mm. News at 10 last week, uh, six o'clock news as well. Mainstream media attention. I think for anybody that's just thinking, keep our heads down, it will go away. No, it won't. There's more and more data coming through. There's more and more pressure. They're now seeing a lot of pressure mounting on the uh, house building companies that have got sort of historical defect issues. Yeah. Although the statute of liabilities may have gone, the The brand hasn't gone away, so there's brand damage being done. And I think this is just going to become a bigger and bigger issue until the industry and government work out how they're going to pay to fix the problem, Mm. because it cannot be right that young families and young professionals and older professionals and retired people are being hit with 10, 20, 30, 50,000-pound bills Mm. to effectively – make up for deficiencies in, in regulations and poor quality construction over years. You know, it, human opinion will not be on the side of those policy makers, yeah. um, and they're doing a bloody good job at keeping this in the in the press alongside COVID and mm. um, Brexit and all the other big things that are going on. Sort of story number three is this whole sort of housing, building safety, cladding scandal issue, I would say. Uh,
0: le- leaseholders, man, I'm, I just from my experience it's just shocking how they're treated it's just shocking um you know and and you kind of alluded to it there but you know sending them bills for for you know fire, what i would call essential fire safety repairs or or requirements in a building and saying you need to pay for this because you're a leaseholder and I understand the behind the scenes of it. Like if you're a big company, you've got general needs property. So that's like rented stock. You've got rented stock property and the company pays for repairs on a leasehold building. That company would say, well, essentially that means the rented stock are, are subsidizing the leasehold. But on and, and that part of the the, the the game, I don't really understand the your kind of finance, the legal side of things. Right? But when I look at this from my point of view, it, it, I, like you know what I'm like, Matt. I like to think you know drill things down to the simplest, simplest form. Let's work, let's really try and make this simple. In that, well, let's take compartmentation as an example because this was always the one that came up with me. Fire doors. So a leaseholder has a flat. Their front door will be a fire door or should be a fire door. Yeah. And you come along or I come along. I'm a fire assessor, I come along and I say, right, fire doors, absolute dog shit. We need to get rid of it. Right, replace it. They will then backcharge that, or they will not do it and issue the job to the leaseholder. So it depends on what kind of landlord you're dealing with. They'll either do it and then backcharge it, or they'll they'll say, right, that's your job, Matt, because you're the leaseholder. Now, as far as I'm concerned, uh, fire door is one component of a bid, a building-wide system, a shared system in which we would call compartmentation. Yeah. So, it therefore. It is no different from any other shed system in water, electrics or or anything like that. So I always pose the question, would you go into someone's flat and say, well, that cable that's going behind your wall, you can't see it because you've got plaster. It's all chased in, but it's coming from flat five through your flat and into another one. You you own that section of that cable. No, because that would just be absolute, you know, crazy. You wouldn't be able to do that. Well, that's what you're doing with fire you You are
1: with with leaseholders in most leases that front door is the leaseholders it's not you as the the building manager it's not your demise and this is part of the problem with the new fire safety order is working out and and to a degree with the building safety bill is working out how do you actually implement these proposed changes? and and then if you get into the the grenfell inquiry recommendations that really a lot of those just completely ignore landlord and tenant law Mm. um you know, and I, I've had people calling me saying, look, we're doing a sprinkler um, installation in, in buildings and, and leaseholders are actually, we're, we're funding, you know, with the land bill, we've, we've offered to fund it, but the leaseholder's just refusing to let us in to extend the sprinkler into their apartment. Wow. So, but then you start to put responsibility onto the the, the new accountable person and, and building safety manager under the building safety bill. Yeah. And they don't actually at the moment have, the legal power to enter people's private apartments you know so there's a there's all sorts of unintended consequences of this but yeah I think at the at its root if me being a dick puts you at risk next door who's responsible for managing those relationships and making sure that you know I'm not lighting a massive barbecue on my balcony and doing all this storing kerosene on it or paraffin for the boiler you know whatever it is Mm -hmm. there has to be um i think the legal power for a building manager to be able to manage the safety of that building effectively Mm. um and you know it's being worked on but it's not it's not a simple transition
0: see i i probably controversial and obviously i'm wrong uh because we, we wouldn't be changing legislation if i was if i was right but I thought it was there, Matt, if I'm honest. I thought, I mean, it didn't say it line for line, but I thought the regulatory reform order did quite a j- good job. Uh, and and I've been in, I, I very clearly remember sitting in a pub, uh, ordered dinner, me, another, what I would class as the most experienced fire safety professional I've ever come across in my entire career. Um, this guy had fire engineer, fire risk assessor coming out of his years. Um, me and him um, and two f- fire officers worked for for a fire fire service, and and all of us could not agree on who owned the fire door not one of us it was just and as the drinks kept coming it was like a i don't know you know what you know what these business mates are like pre-co- yeah. pre-covid pre you know we had more and more beers and it just got more and more heated and we just couldn't agree and, and we agreed on the fact that they're that you know they're a vital component but it's who who pays for it and that's what this comes down to and when i look at it i just think if I'm a landlord and one of my tenants puts another tenant at risk, the only connecting thing between them is me. Therefore, it has to be my responsibility within yeah. reason. You have a responsibility yourself, obviously, but it has to be my responsibility to some to some entity. But that fire door, I don't see how that can be anyone's other responsibility other than the, the landlord. As far as I'm concerned, it, and and I I understand that you know landlords and these mass who own these huge blocks of buildings. Sometimes it's a political nightmare, and and like you just said, it's a legal nightmare as well. Sometimes you've got the Housing Act might conflict with the Regulatory Reform Order, or it might conflict with something else, and you can't do this and you can't do that, and it's a nightmare. I remember the challenges I had just to just to service someone's boiler. Like we're doing a job for you, come and service your boiler in a rented stock. It was just a nightmare, and the amount of wasted money we had.
1: Regulatory reform order is that you know it's born out of workplaces. So if you look at something a fair as, as simple as sharing of the fire risk assessment. So as as an employee, I have a right to see the fire risk assessment for my workplace from my employer. That's enshrined in law. As yeah. a resident within a residential building, I don't have that right. So there is a there's an inconsistency there that still hasn't been addressed. So obviously. It, that will be enshrined in law for under the uh, building safety regulator under the building safety bill but only for buildings over 18 meters mm-hmm. or over six stories so that's 13,000 buildings out of probably two or three four hundred thousand that would be under multi-occupancy residential under the um the order so so much further to go that you know and i said this to somebody the other day that if you look out of your window of your flat and you see a car in the car park that you don't recognise, you can go online and with a couple of apps, you can look up whether it's insured, whether it's MOT'd, um, you, know, what did it, you know, you can you can see all that information about a car. But you don't know whether the building you live in is safe or not. Mm-hmm. And you have no way of knowing. You have no legal power. You cannot compel. I mean, so we, we end up talking to people about saying, well, the, my landlord won't give me my fire risk assessment. I really want to see it. And I'm worried. What can I do? Well. Get the, lo- get the local fire and rescue service to come and do a visit. They can compel a copy of the FRA and then submit a freedom of information request to the fire and rescue service. for. And you just end up with these bizarre constructs that are just completely bloody stupid. Mm. Now, it, this is a risk assessment for the building that should be suitable and sufficient. You have to do it by law. I know that residents aren't your employees, but you owe them an even greater duty of care. You know, if I, if I come into the office for three hours a week, okay, I'm at some risk, but there's fire alarms, there's simultaneous evacuation, it's not a sleeping risk, it's not my home, I'm not cooking in it. It's fairly benign, but I've got more of a right to see that information at work than I have in my home.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. just
1: seems bonkers, and that's just one of the many stupid things that goes on and why I think we've got ourselves in such a pickle when it comes to the likes of Grenfell. Um, and all the shenanigans that are going on at the coming out in the inquiry now and how we've got mm-hmm. such a mess because we just don't do the basics right. I think the other point that I would say you, you mentioned about it is I think we could do a lot more with the legislation we've already got. You know, but I don't I don't necessarily agree with the fact that we've got to rip everything up and start again that was sort of came from Hackett, that everything was broken. Nobody knows what they're doing. they're all useless. Let's start again, you know, and and start comparing apartment blocks to oil rigs or chemical Mm -hmm. plants. They're not. These are simple things. They're blocks of flats. They don't all spontaneously combust. They're not hugely dangerous, generally. Mm -hmm. Um, We just need to be better at managing what we've got. And we need to tweak a bit of the legislation. I don't think we need this whole kind of years and years of dragging two bills through Parliament personally. But, you know, they're they're on their way through.
0: Uh, I've I think to some point I, I, I would like to see, I, I would like to see what the building safety case kind of stuff brings. And, and I'd like to see if it helps. Um, but I, I, I'm kind of skeptical about it if I'm honest, because I, I think like, like you alluded to there, we, we had the systems in place, you know, if you do a good fire risk assessment, that is, that is a building safety case obviously just focusing on fire, but it's the same thing really. Um, yeah. And 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 I just think you know that the systems to this I I mean this is just so complicated sometimes when you get into it but I think that the systems were not really the root cause of of an issue but in some cases they will and I'll come back they are they were and I'll come back to that in a minute but like what this came down to I think is just people just weren't looking after the buildings. Like a lot of people just had buildings and they just weren't looking after it, and 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 that you've got another problem in the fact that that the level of competency within for the fire risk assessing profession just unbelievably varies. Um, it you can have one that's got the same qualifications, the same experience as another, and and one is horrendous and the other one is is outstanding. The other thing is the the guidance systems that people are using to risk assess these, these, uh, these buildings are really hard to work with uh, as to work out what building you're doing and what building falls into what guide. Oh, <coughs> excuse me. That's a nightmare. But then when you look at it, when, and what I think Dame Judith Hackett did really well was addressing some of the systemic issues that we have in the construction sector in the, Some of the newest buildings, both when I worked in healthcare and when I worked in housing, the newer buildings were nine times out of ten the worst ones. The lack of education around, you know, basic fire stopping, uh, compartmentation, escape routes, you know, even design issues were just horrendous sometimes. And it's just... You can see the gold conflicts. You can see the gold conflicts of get this stuff up as quick as possible and forget everything else. You know, pink foam is a great example. You know, it's like a it's like an ongoing joke now. If you're in this, for if you're in the fire game of like everybody thinks that this pink foam that you see in your cupboard and uh, the block of flats is this magical pink foam that stops everything. But everybody who, who knows about fire safety or even knows about the basis of compartmentation knows that it does bugger all. Of than when it's in a, well, I think it's like a three mil hole or something like that, a five mil hole, if I remember rightly. Um, that's all it's designed for. And I think Dame Judith Hackett addresses that as well. But it's just like, it was there, the information was there. So there's systemic issues within the construction sector because you're just handing a tray of this pink foam stuff, this expanding foam, and going, giving it to apprentice Matt and saying, Matt, go and fill every hole that you see with this stuff. Yep. And you're just like, so you've got poor competency when we're building it, poor competency when we're assessing it, poor competency when we're managing it. Uh, our goal conflicts are probably all of those. Uh, and I just think, I wonder whether building safety cases, whether residency and risk assessments are really going to make a difference i just wonder there will just be more paperwork and less actual change I, I don't know maybe that's just a skeptic in me
1: i think it will i mean the the one of the issues that you've got because we're moving from this sort of i'll use the term loosely sort of rules-based system to a risk-based regulatory system in in high rise is that the, the effectively the mechanism that the government have proposed is that there's a, a thing called the building safety charge, which effectively is a demand, for 28 days demand to pay for building safety work. That can come, from, and it bypasses section 20 of Landlord and Tenant Act, and effectively, it's a, it's a different way of charging sort of outside of the service charge. So effectively, okay. if you, let's take the example that you've got a, um, a building manager that, that says, I'm comfortable with the safety, I'm willing to sign off on it and submit the building safety case. And then you change management and that new manager has a different risk appetite Mm. that maybe would cost 250 grand to satisfy his or her reduced risk appetite. They've got a mechanism to put that to you as a leaseholder, your share, and you pay within 28 days. Um, you have to have the building safety manager and the accountable person nominated. There's a certification regime. And if you, effectively if you viewers' residents don't comply, then you could end up in special measures where the regulator steps in or ultimately prohibition Everybody out, we're withdrawing your certificate. So that's being enshrined in law. So I think, with the best of consequences, it now puts you at a really, really difficult situation. You know, I've sort of described it for leaseholders as a blank check that you're giving to the building manager um, that you hope they won't write too often. But legally, you were in a weak position before, it's now going to be even weaker. That's probably why so many leaseholders have replied to that consultation. Uh, you know, unprecedented, I'm not a great follower of legislation consultations, that's not my bag, but this one I've been deeply involved in, I was quite surprised, I thought it was all going to be trade associations and um, fire and rescue services and various people like that, but it mainly, it was, you know, it was punters, with really heartbreaking stories of kind of financial ruin um, as a result of this legislation and interim measures and um, this kind of zero harm risk aversion Culture that's broken out, which is we can't have another Grenfell, which is quite right. But taking very low-risk buildings and completely overreacting to the risk. Um, But there's no objective way of risk assessing all of these buildings and comparing them at the moment. Just isn't. There is no matrix to say anyone that scores above a 68 need to work. Anybody below 68 that's tolerable. You know, there isn't a, a consistent metric for comparing these buildings. It's all subjective.
0: I just I mean that for me, that blank checked from to lease up from leaseholders to that's shocking. I think, like you said, it puts him in a weaker position that 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 to me is just immoral like I just can't believe that, uh, and I know, I know. If you were, you know, maybe the housing podcast will completely disagree with me. And you know what? That that's the nature of the world nowadays, and that's good. You know, that's that's a good thing that we disagree with each other, and hopefully, we'll get to the right position. But is that not? I think it's, it's universal. So it's universal,
1: really. I think from from most quarters, sort of saying it's unfair. Um, funnily enough, the in the consultation, the only people that didn't really mention because we we did sort of keyword analysis looking at words like EWS1 and, and building safety charge, et cetera. And there was an interesting trend that the freeholders, in their responses, rarely mentioned those words. Because let's look at it, it's, it's, it's a very friendly piece of legislation to freeholders, effectively. Um, so you could argue that, that you would it wasn't necessarily a completely kind of fair response and equitable res- response but similarly a lot of the residents are saying well this should just be completely the cost of the freeholder it's nothing to do with us where most of the freeholders are fairly absent kind of ground rent owners they' they're, they're only exposed to a tiny percent of the value of the building um so then you look at it and say well if there's a 10 million pounds bill is it fair that they foot all of that bill and then you start getting into, why have we got the bill in the first place is it construction defects? is it retrospective guidance from from the government post Grenfell? a lot of it is and then it's a question of saying how do we carve up that 10 million pound bill you know is it the taxpayer that pays it leaseholders freeholder combination of all three insurers original construction firm designers but just imagine unpicking that kind of issue in a particular oh, building a and
0: multiplying that by hundreds, if
1: not thousands,
0: it would be a nightmare. Yeah, it would. Uh, and, it uh, and 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 it's easy for for us. It's easy for me to sit here and say, you know, what well, you can't charge a leaseholder for that fire door for, because you haven't maintained it. You know, over the years, that's just immoral. But then, you know, they'll come back and say, well, I didn't think I owned up that, that door, um, and and therefore I didn't check it. Um, but then, I just. I just don't. I don't know. Maybe it's because um, – because maybe I'm biased because of my position and experience. But you know, if I was advising a, a, a freeholder, I would just say, do you know what? Like, do you do you do you trust? I'm going to give you a, you know, how, how much training do you give a, an employee to do a job? Like, and how much do you, cri- you know, you critically kind of look at their competence all the time, don't you? Yeah. Why do you do that when they're checking the fire door in your office building? Why do you do that? Oh, so no, I'm confident that, that my building is safe, that they're doing a, a good job. Right. But yeah, you own a block of flats where people sleep, leave, live, you know, eat, drink, uh, and so on and so forth. Drink, alcohol, God, God knows, do wh- whatever and you're just trusting someone you don't know to to do that when i look at i try to look at it from a brand point of view it was always my, my unsuccessful way of coming at it was like the long and short of it as if this building goes yeah from a legal point of view it's gray but do you want your your brands on bbc news because that's what's going to happen is, you know, you're going to have Charlie Slates going, Matt Hodges' long freeholders uh, have failed to maintain the building um, over the last 10 years, and it's burnt down and killed X number of people. That That's what's going to happen. You know, look at all the bad press that's come out of, like, um, uh, Rydens, you know, who did the work on Grenfell, the the, the local council that, that owned that building, and so on and so forth. You know, none of that is good for your brand. Um, but. Yeah, I suppose, like you say, it always comes down to that legal thing. But, do you know, there's an interesting point I'd like to touch on, and I'd like, I'd wonder what your, your opinion is. But the 18 meter line for me just seems stupid and short sighted, in my opinion. Um, we're going over, like you said, to this risk based system. Yet we're going to this 18 meter rule, which is the opposite of risk based If you well, if you you know maintain well a blocker a block of flats, to be honest, some of the care and support properties that I've known that are two, three stories, um, that would not fall into all of the new requirements because they're below 18 meters, are ten times, thirty times, hundred times more dangerous and more at risk than most of the leasehold freehold etc rented stock blocks of flats that i've come across um, those hmos that you get that you just go there and you just think you know this is the hmo for a very specific customer for example you know the vulnerable customer in most of the cases extremely vulnerable and you just think and then you find out the, the house next door, they're knocking through that house and they're knocking through that house and you end up having a terrace street of houses that are all just one massive building and you're just like, this doesn't fall into these new changes from a fire safety point of view because instead of going up, they've just gone width but it's yeah. just as dangerous. I've had some buildings well,
1: like rabbits. Yes, I had, this, I had the, I, a spat would be a wrong word but a, a Twitter conversation with, um, uh, with Lord Greenhouse, the Minister of State for Building Safety, Um, A few days ago where he said something and I I called him out and said, look, I think you're looking in the wrong place. You know, this is this isn't where the risk is. Mm. What data do you have for this? And so one, the expert evidence of the fire chiefs to the um, building safety bill consultation where they keep talking about scope. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I I, I sort of followed it up, I think, the day later with sort of saying if Grenfell had been a care home. We'd all be obsessed by care homes now. Yeah, exactly. Now, th- the risk is still in the care homes. Um, if you just look at the London Fire Brigade enforcement record, um, the risk is in the the, the shop with the two-story net above it with poor mm-hmm. maintenance, like Ealing the other day, which killed a couple of people. Um, it's it's not in it's not in the high-rise sort of Grenfell type of building. It, the, the risk is still there, but you the fire brigades are not out visiting that type of building all the time. There's other buildings that they visit because they know where the deaths are. They know where the risks are. Mm. But, you yeah, know, we're, we're focused on this 18 metres. I think uh, Dame Judith originally was at 30 metres. Mm. Uh, that was brought to 18. There's talk of going to 11. Yeah. But still, you know, we're, if, you, if you're in the two-storey or three-storey timber frame extra care home, you're still below the radar. You've got compartment, compartmentation failings all over the place, poor maintenance, and hugely vulnerable residents. If you look at hospitals with shelter in place or phased evacuation, all those sorts of things, and you, you mentioned it earlier, but a good friend of mine, Steve McKenzie, um, has just published an open letter to the government calling for a public inquiry about fire safety in PFI hospitals or in modern hospitals. Mm. There's loads of outstanding enforcements in that marketplace. Um, and you've got people there on heart bypass, if there's a fire in that external wall or anywhere, um, you've got to wait your turn and you can't just all run. So when when you're looking at a a 20 metre building full of young professionals in the centre of Manchester with an alarm system and they've all got two arms, two legs, fit and healthy, um, that's a different risk to a slightly lower building full of senior citizens with hearing impairments. Exactly. And um, you, we, we've just got this blanket kind of response, which is, well, we've got to start somewhere. We'll look at the scope in the
0: future. Well, Sh- short-sighted, not good enough. You, you, you'll end up having, you've, you've just literally just... It's, but Yeah, you've just hit the nail on the head for all of those examples. I can corroborate from experience. I've seen it. I've not seen the fires, but I've seen it. You know, new PFI hospitals where you go in and that they're, they're supposed to be designed to uh, uh, progressive horizontal evacuation. And you're just like, for those who don't know, it's basically where you work your way across the building and then and then you finally go out. Um, and you just look at it and you go... There's no way we could sustain a, a progressive horizontal evacuation in here. Um and, and you just think, you know, this is more dangerous than, than a poorly maintained block of flats. Um and then you
1: take you take that risk and you stick a stick a lovely uh, HPL laminate on the on the outer skin. Um and uh away you go or ACM or whatever it's it. got because you, you could legally do it. It you know it wasn't in breach of the guidance as I understand it. Mm. Um so you've then got to look at the, what? Is, where is the real, real, real? Now just because we haven't had one of those, yeah, that's luck. Okay, and and long may that continue. That we we continue this run of luck, if you like. And, you yeah. know, I don't want to, but we, I think we do need a more mature conversation about risk and about building safety, and there needs to be a really quick way to actually gather this data so again three years post grenfell the ministry of housing is still running around trying to find out what type of buildings we've got and how tall are they and what type of materials we used you know this is over three years in a crisis situation i mean where is the where's the
0: urgency yeah there isn't daft And then you've got the you've got like uh, new models of care being pushed by the NHS, which is huge, a huge demand on the housing sector. And and some of the new models and care properties that are being built um, are, are nothing short of a care home. You know, and you know, they're huge, vast buildings, but they're like two, three stories. They're massive buildings, and and some of them are, are storing, you know, three levels of 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 kind of require of vulnerabilities. You know, like high needs, mid needs, low needs. And these high needs people, you know, you answer the simple question: Can these people self-evacuate? No. Then they need to be in a care home, or they need 24-hour care. And, and there just does not seem to be an understanding of that throughout the whole housing sector. It, it, we just seem to have this complete disconnect between the NHS and the care sector and the housing sector in which everybody seems it acceptable to put somebody who physically cannot move without assistance into a property on their own. And I understand there's a, I understand there's a balance there between you know uh, uh, quality of life and, and I you know I'm not in insens, insensitive to that I understand that you know and there's people that you know may've I've been called that I've been told I've been discriminating when I've been saying you know this this person is, is at serious risk they yeah. cannot evacuate this building like, you're discriminating and I'm like so Sorry? Like, I could not believe it when I was told that. And I'm just sitting there like, I'm I'm just, my job is to keep people alive. Like, that's what I'm here to do. And it's upsetting that you're turning around to me and saying I'm, I'm discriminating. If anything, it's the opposite. I'm saying that you're discriminating because you're putting that person in there and you're putting them at risk because of their disability or because of their vulnerability. And you've got these, again, you've got these goal conflicts. Of the massive, massive pressure that the NHS are under, and the housing sector, I think, have just got pound signs. And I'm just speaking hypothetically here, but I genuinely think they're just seeing pound signs, and they're going, "We can do that. We can do that. Um, we'll have all your people, put them in this block, this new block we've made, that's a new models of care building. And oh shit, now we've got loads of people that are there 24 seven that should be having 24 seven care. They've got nothing." It's the middle yeah. of the night, a fire happens, you've got one security guard, and the fire service turn up and they go, you've got to evacuate. And they say, we can't. Why? Because you have got 26 people here who are high needs. They're bedridden. Uh, what's it going to take? We're going to kill another 70-something people? Mm. It's just scary. It's scary. Yeah,
1: it does bog I mean, there'll always be the sort of the, the economic incentive or disincentive, won't there? But when when if you look at that type of building and say for a fairly modest amount of money, you could have sprinkled that building, for example, yeah. give everybody some more time, or, or maybe even you know, extinguish the fire or mm-hmm. certainly suppress it. But we've decided to save the 60 grand or whatever the, the amount is. That I think is where it becomes intolerable. And then you say, well, okay, well let's build that out of timber frame. Let's not maintain the timber frame properly <laughs> or do any intrusive inspections into it. And you start layering on, you could just see what that inquiry would look like. Mm-hmm. And personally, if I was an asset director of the housing association or whatever it was, do you know what, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't want that on my conscience. I would be mm-hmm. making, and, and actually I have heard from a number of them that despite what's going on with high rise buildings, their focus is not on high rise buildings at the moment, it's on the low rise stuff because they know where the risk is. Yeah. So if I've got fire officers telling me the risk isn't where the government think it is, and I've got housing professionals telling me the risk is not where the government thinks it is. I'm going to listen to them mm. over some politics graduate that's working in the Ministry of Housing now. That's yeah, being exactly. fed whatever they've been fed by industry associations or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'll go to the people that
0: Based turn up to every day.
1: buyers mm. and I'll listen to them. Thank you very much. And if they're saying this is where our concern is, but that's nowhere near Dame Judith Hackett's scope at the moment, it doesn't mean to say that that risk has gone away. It needs to be managed. Mm. So, um, yeah, you know, we, we need to have this conversation and people need to be aware of it. And on the flip side, I think there's, well, I know, there's thousands of people living in flats at the moment that genuinely believe every night they go to bed, they're going to die in a hideous fire. Wow. You know, that That's the level of panic, if you like. We've got people that are buying... Um, going on Amazon and buying um, ladders that they can throw over their balcony. They're buying fire Mm -hmm. extinguishers. Um, They're petrified um, Mm -hmm. for what is actually... We're looking for it and saying, well, where's the real risk here? Um, We can't see it, certainly not in relation, but they're being told, you've got a flat that's worthless. It needs millions of pounds worth of work doing to it because it could be the next Grenfell. Um, Nobody can buy or sell um we need to put people here in high vis jackets wandering around sniffing for smoke with a squirty air gun horn um most of the time they're watching netflix um you know playing on their mobile phones and chatting outside that that's <laughs> the objective evidence that kind of, as you can imagine you know the sort of the human yeah. fire alarm waking watchman or woman yeah um and you know that's the reality of where we are today it's it, it's one of those things that if you talk to somebody new about this and you start explaining it they look at you and say well, this can't possibly yeah no you're making something up you've you know it, it and yeah. the more you dig the the worse it gets yeah or the more the contagion spreads um and there the, the really does need to be some kind of appliance of common sense here really mm. um and we, you know to get the market stabilized again and and actually prioritize the whether you know the government for example have you heard of the building safety fund that the government yeah so it's it's a cladding remediation fund or lottery yeah. but they're applying the money which is insufficient anyway on a first-come first-served basis so you could be number 25 in the queue and you get to number 25 number 250 and the money's run out but actually you could be the highest risk building in the country
0: yeah
1: but there's no cash
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it's a first-come first-served application rather than putting so my view is well, we need to score all of these buildings on risk and then we need to say, right, okay, where is the risk appetite and who's got the highest number? Of, right, and then start working your way down the list to below where the risk appetite is. But we could well be remediating loads of buildings at taxpayers' expense that either didn't need it or didn't need it as badly as the ones that then don't get funded. Yeah. So is this fund about building safety or... What is it for? Mm. And unfortunately, nobody seems to be able to answer that question. Mm. It's one of
0: the That's, many outstanding that, questions. That 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 kind of fear that you're talking about with the residents is 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 that all centered around the cladding? Is that is it all centered around their perception of, or I I have the you know the flammable cladding on on my building, I'm I'm going to die imminently? Or, or yeah,
1: it's so it, it's born out of cladding and the the conversation hasn't is moving towards one of building safety okay so you might lose the building potentially from the cladding but you've got an amazing alarm system you've got multiple uh, routes for escape you're all fit and healthy internal compartmentation's good etc mm-hmm. etc versus you've got cladding issues but actually or even bigger issue is wholesale sort of compartmentation failure yeah. within the building um smoke log staircases and all sorts of stuff Mm -hmm. which they a lot of people don't know they've got yet because the intrusive survey work is is being done in the external wall but not in the internal makeup of the building so we always say to people unless you've got that thorough understanding of the external wall and you've got a type 4 fra or or investigative work to actually show that the compartmentation is going to work you need both sides of the equation So the fire safety bill that's going through at the moment, which will um, amend the fire safety order or revise the fire safety order, um, is actually saying that the fire risk assessment needs to include the external wall. So that change is coming. And that, as we understand it, is 1.7 million buildings will require an assessment of their external wall. Mm. Now, the question I haven't had an answer to yet is at the point where the fire engineering community or the fire risk assessment community understood that in Grenfell, the external wall was a major part of the, the failure of the building, without changing the fire safety order, how were fire risk assessments conducted beyond that point suitable and sufficient if they didn't include even a nod to the external wall? Exactly.
0: It's a foreseeable risk, therefore it-, it...
1: Now, nobody, so you've actually got fire associations Recommending to members to specifically exclude the external wall from their fire risk assessments. Well, how is that as a responsible person? How is that suitable and sufficient? I can understand from a practitioner's perspective how you could turn around and say, Well, I'll do this, but I'll exclude that. Mm. Still don't know whether that fits with competence, but certainly from a responsible person's perspective. How can I turn around and say that I've got a suitable and sufficient fire risk assessment for the building exactly. if I've completely ignored a potential huge accelerant mm. as a part of that building makeup? Just because we've always done it the other way mm. doesn't make it right, you know. And I don't don't think that's been tested yet as to to what suitable and sufficient means in that context.
0: There's, um, there's always been arguments around scope of fire assessment that existed before cladding because before cladding it was it was you know communal areas i'm i'm only here to risk assess the communal areas well in that case you should only be in there for about two seconds because all you're risk assessing is stairs and that's it so or if you're in a hospital um and that hospital is owned by one entity and within that entity they rent that out to loads of different individual trusts um, for example, and you, you then would have about 50 or 60 different fire risk assessments, depending on how many different kind of tenants you have within that within that building. And if you're the overarching landlord uh, or the f- facilities management provider or whatever, you do a risk assessment of just that staircase and uh, or just that corridor. And it was always my argument to say, well, this is bloody stupid because... There's just no risk in this. In this, like I'm, I'm risk assessing, but the risk is in what my tenants are doing. So it it needs to include that. that otherwise, it's not suitable and sufficient. It, it's yeah. just a it's a bullshit waste of my time, um, and and that's not what I was what I'm here to do. So yeah. we could we could argue about scope until the cows come home. And and I I don't know. From my opinion, I just think it just it's just common sense, but if you follow it down the letter of the law, then, okay, maybe you could argue that it's out of scope, but then, then you've got the flip side is is what's the quality that you're getting through. I remember post Grenfell, every fire risk assessment I got off a consultant would just say, you must provide evidence that your cladding is not this. And I'm like, well, great. Thanks for that. I've just paid you 700 pounds for that risk assessment. And you've given me what diddly squat, a shitload of questions. Um, and then we come back to the competency of fire assessors thing. So it's all well and good saying, all right, we'll include it in their scope. But it's like, do they have the capacity, the intelligence, the competency to actually give the landlord, who's, who's in theory the uneducated one, I say that in quotations, but the, to give them what they need? Or are you just going to provide them a shitload of, of other vague and crappy statements like, you must confirm, I, I've had a fire assessment, Matt. Right, and and I was at loggerheads with somebody in a meeting room over this, but I've had a fire risk assessment of a so-called competent fire risk assessor saying, you must confirm this fire door is a fire door. Now, if I'm paying you £700 for a fire risk assessment and you're a fire risk assessor, you, you should tell me whether that's a fire door or not. And it's just this absolute mess where they would just say, well, I'm a fire risk assessor. I'm not a fire door engineer. And I'm just like Jesus Christ, what what is like Grenfell happened, and we went the in my opinion, a lot of us went the opposite way. We didn't say well, right, let's embrace this, let's, let's try and get better, let's improve, let's learn. We took it to we we ended fear mode. We tried to start protecting ourselves. We we, we narrowed down our scopes and just say Look, this is all I'm talking about. And we ended up just writing down risk assessments are just full of statements of ours covering. That's all it is. It's a mess. It's absolute mess.
1: Yeah, we do we do lose sight of, of. Well, I mean, we we spend a lot of time trying to calm people down when they're talking to us and sort of saying, "Look, let's understand the problem. What 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 are you being told? You know, what? Yes, you've got a fire risk assessment back, and there's some stickers missing or something like that. You know, the key thing I want to know is: is this risk assessment actually for your building, or has it been made up? Who did it? Um, are the priority actions being followed through? Mm. Um you know let's look at the really important stuff let's focus on that yeah it could always be better but the reality is you'll probably be fine mm. um it's far more risk in other things you probably do in your in your daily life mm. um but there is this fear that's come through that is completely understandable um as a result of grenfell but yeah to, to answer your previous point the obsession is still about the cladding mm. um politicians still talk about cladding all the time they don't talk about compartmentation failures and other more technical things mm. um, they're just talking about cladding um, and but yeah the external walls will need to be surveyed um, there is a huge shortage of people with the right level of competence to be able to do that mm. there are a lot of sharks that have come into the market that really shouldn't be there but are being given the opportunity to to flourish because of the really unbelievably poorly worded process from the royal institution of chartered surveyors that they do everything they can to distance themselves from but it's just you can drive a bus through the wording really, um wow. we did we did a review of it and uh, the guidance notes or the, the the rules on the on the back page of the cws one form there are i think it was 17 coulds mays and shoulds and there's one must so yeah, you could do it. Well, there's nothing to say if I haven't. So therefore, I'll, I'll do the opposite. Mm. So and then they get upset when, when the media are talking about fraud and they're showing them examples of it and they're running around trying to sort of um, shut the door when the horse has bolted, you know. And, it, and the annoying thing is we warned them about that in March. So the process was launched in late December. We cottoned onto it by early March, validated it, and warned them in the middle of March. And then the story about fraud broke in October. And it had taken from March to October to go through all of the warning everybody and trying to get them to do the right thing, getting exasperated, working with the media, spending six weeks putting a story together to then break the story to get them to do something about it. And you think, if all of that combined effort had been put into making buildings safe, we'd be so much further forward. Yeah. So this is just every aspect of what we're talking about is months, if not half years, if not years of cajoling and mollycoddling and outing people in the media to try and get some positive progress. Mm. Um, and it, it, it's really not helpful. So three years post-Grenfell, very few buildings are any safer than they were before Grenfell. Yeah. But we're talking about lovely, shiny legislation that's going to take seven years to roll out for a tiny scope of buildings. And then we wonder, just thankful at the moment we haven't had another Grenfell in this country, but I don't see that the government have done anything to stop that from happening.
0: Uh, I just, it's just, and then, I mean, it, we could talk about this all day and we're not going to because it's seven o'clock and I, I need some dinner and I'm sure you probably do as well. But um, I, I just think it's when you've got, it's, we, we seem to, uh, in my in my opinion, we we've, we've lost our our sense of why we were doing this. um the, that that's what it feels like to me. Is is you know, it's, it's gone from that sense of, of, of that fire that I will never forget watching on the telly. Uh, you know, I never forget literally having tears roll down my face watching documentaries mm-hmm. that came out a year, months later, whatever, um, where. You know, listening to these testimonials of people that are doing and I think fair play to the residents and, and the people that are helping the residents, celebrities, whatever, um, and all the kind of projects around it and trying to keep the, the momentum there. But I think we lost sight of what we were trying to achieve here quite early on. In which it just became this massive ice covering process. It became uh, knee-jerk reactions of, you know, reacting to cladding and and, and you know putting everyone in hospital. Uh, sorry, hotels and you know, banks not not giving people mortgages because the cladding's there, which creates more of a complication for for landlords. And it's just it's it, it's just an absolute social political mess. And, and then at the root cause of all this was still what was it 72 72 74 can't remember now but 72, 72, 72. Yeah. families have lost somebody and it's just like you know that's why we were doing this.
1: yeah it's it, we, we need to um, change does need to happen but we what we've always talked about is that the, the problem was potentially so big we need to confront it and we need to gather that information. We need to really hit it hard to make changes quickly. And at least if that was quantifying the risk and saying, where do we need interim measures? Where do we need remediation activity, et cetera, et cetera? What we've done is this slow drip feeding of buildings in scope, as you talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. that is missing the target. I I used it in a tweet that sort of, you know, we're focused on the ankles rather than the ball or one of the other, some kind of football analogy that's the one Mm that said the government. Um, where we're just not looking in the right place. We've allowed ourselves to be deviated from where we should be looking. Mm. Um, And now whether that's some kind of bluff or con or whether that's just a genuine mistake, I don't know. Um, But we just very simply called in November 2018, call in all the fire risk assessments and risk assess based on that and go back for further information and start risk ranking all of these buildings. Mm. You know, with, with a fire risk assessment, a Google Earth image and a few people that know what they're doing and a bit of AI, we can start understanding where the risk is in these buildings. We can start engaging with residents and we can start dealing with the, the big issues that we need to deal with. Um, the problem,
0: but no. I I I think I agree with everything you just said. I think the problem you've got is that it's it, the, the poor quality of fire assessments within the UK is just is absolutely abysmal. Um, and I'm not tiring everyone with the same the same brush. Uh, I think there are a hell of a lot of really competent, really good fire risk assessors out there. But the the dross in that profession overpowers the the good, in my opinion. And the majority of fire risk assessments I saw, uh, and I just were just not up to scratch. We're just not up to scratch. So, um, so it's a starting point. If you so at the moment, if that risk assessment is sitting there in a, on a
1: SharePoint drive somewhere and you you know that no one's ever going to look at it unless there's a problem Uh, it's out of sight out of mind but if you had to say well we've got 50 fire risk assessments and we need to lodge these with formally with the fire and rescue service or with the regulator or with whoever make them available to our residents then you know for well that if 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 the pictures are of a different building or it's 12 years old or it's work of fiction somebody's going to call you out for that whereas they're not going to do it they're not a resident's not going to step inside your sharepoint drive and find it and tell you there's a problem so just by giving it that level of transparency i would i would say that most people would probably give them a cursory glance maybe update a few before sharing them Uh, so by bringing that level of of ownership in um I, i think a lot of people. Do, you can get people that don't do the right thing, and people that are fraudsters or charlatans, or call them what you like. But I think most people want to do the right thing, and it's about that that gets measured, gets done. Or I don't know, I've forgotten the forgotten the term, but you know what I mean. That the, the yeah. you you wouldn't overtly want to make a complete knob of yourself by mm. sending somebody a fire risk assessment for their building that wasn't for their building.
0: Okay, you could you the could, um... work. Yeah, you're kind of creating vulnerability, aren't you, in the in the landlords and or the freeholders or whoever it is building safety manager, whatever. It creates a sense of vulnerability because all these people are now can view and critique your and ask mm. questions of your fire assessment. Therefore, that should inevitably mean that vulnerability that I feel, say, as a freeholder, means that I would demand a better quality in theory so i see where you're yeah. going with that Yeah. No.
1: but i think the term for that is chronic unease <sighs> which is good um but the, the keep you on the toes but ultimately there's a you know you are an rp you are the responsible person be flipping responsible exactly okay and that means a fire risk assessment that's suitable and sufficient is reasonably close to the to the truth you know it isn't one that predated a overcladding project or whatever it was, um, and one that you're happy to be your best work. You're happy to. Sh- Why would you want to hide that from a resident? Mm. Now, the only way they're going to beat you with the use it as a stick to beat you with is if you've got a whole bunch of red remediation activities in there that you haven't bothered to do for three years. Mm. You know, that that's the that's the point, you know, and that's that's the responsibility, that's the accountability, um, and if you know that. You know, we, we've we've got ways of doing of reading them with with machine learning and actually risk assessing. You don't don't even have to have a human being that's reading the fire risk assessments if you train it. Um, and one of the bits of feedback we've had from some of the fire and rescue services is, yeah, I really like the idea, but if we suddenly had ten thousand fire risk assessments on our systems, and we were to miss one and there was a problem, then somebody could come back to us and say, well, why didn't you spot it? Yeah. So there's there's all these sorts of cultural blame issues or lack of safety. And, and actually, I think the, the the publishing of these things is probably more placebo in a sense. But if you've got a machine that can read them all and can say, do you know what? There's five buildings in this data set and they've all got the same images. Mm. Or the or the the postcodes don't check out, or mm. the fire risk assessor did. 50 fire risk assessments on the same day. Yeah, You know, those sorts of things. He's just, he or she is just selling their signature <laughs> um, you know, yeah. all this stuff going on to, to legitimise things. It's happening in EWS1 by the way, that people are just procuring signatures from supposed professionals. Um, Christ. So it's very easy to spot this fraud, but not with the naked eye. It needs to be done with machine. Um, and you know, that's part of what we're pushing, is sort of saying you need that surveillance in place and you need to be able to spot weird behavior because that's the biggest precursor to a fraud or to a potential Mm -hmm. issue so let's make it digital let's do it let's do the basics let's do it at scale um and
0: make buildings safer Mm. well a great way to end it that was a lovely little statement there matt all all done uh i'm 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 goosed so uh (laughs) i need some dinner yeah. I made it. I
1: made it before we recorded. It's all prepared. It just needs to go in the oven. So.
0: Oh, OK. Well, I won't hold you back much longer. Uh, Matt, if uh, if people want to get involved with yourselves, uh, uh, if you, uh, either of the, the kind of stuff that you're doing, I know you're spinning a couple of plates now, how, how would they go about that?
1: So with me on LinkedIn, so Matt Hodges-Long on LinkedIn. Um, so that's Hodges-Long, um, Twitter at building, sa- BLDG safety reg, building safety register, or me at Matt Hodges-Long. Um, email, don't bother with that anymore because I probably won't answer it. So, yeah, best thing is LinkedIn or a uh, Twitter DM. Um, you find me somewhere, find me on Google and uh, have a chat and sort of always happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk. Compliance, governance, risk, software, building safety, safety,
0: Oh. just anything um look at that lights my light's just gone look at that for timing ah oh, gone to the bog standard stuff now mate onto the onto just a standard hanging need to, need to put another 50p in the meter yeah
1: um, so yeah in, in any way just just reach out and if ultimately if, if someone can't find me then ping you a note james and i'm sure you'll find my Definitely. email address somewhere and, and get hold of me but no it's been great great to talk
0: yeah, definitely. Thank you very much, Matt. But now I'm sitting in the dark. Uh we might as well just nip it in the bud. But I think uh, yeah, no I think there's another question, another conversation there about e- e- um I forgot it. EWS one. one. I think that's uh that's an, a very. we'll get a day in the diary, I think, to have a chat about yeah, that. Yeah, Okay.
1: We'll make it a date. We'll see you
0: soon. For sure. Thanks a lot, Matt. Okay, peeps, hope you enjoyed that. Don't forget to listen in a couple of days um, for our reflection episode. You'll have noticed that reflection episodes are coming like randomly within the middle of the week. Well, that's because we've had to tweak um, the way we've done our structure and bring another interview into the month uh, schedule because, well, frankly, we just had so many interviews that we, we were not going to be putting people up for like nearly two years, which we didn't want to do. So we're bringing uh, another interview in. To the weekly schedule, which meant that we put the reflection episode out on the same week. So, hopefully, you're enjoying that. Basically, you're getting two extra podcast episodes a month, which is just a win for you. Hope you enjoyed this chat with Matt. Don't forget to go check out his company. All the links in the description. Below. Check out his LinkedIn as well. This guy's really active on LinkedIn and Twitter. So check them out. I'll put all the socials in the, in the description below. Don't forget to check out Project Meletium or DM me um, on LinkedIn or come and send me an email at James at Rebranding Safety if you want to try this out for free. I promise you, you will not regret it. Everyone that's joined is absolutely loving it. Trust me, it's good. And don't forget to go check out Paradigm if you're looking for some support with health and safety compliance and you want that support to be absolute nailed on and you want it to be with that that kind of better way of thinking about safety woven in through it, that is the place for you. So go check them out. Or if you're not sure, check them out on their website as well and you can go and go to their webinar every week. So thanks for listening. I'll catch you in a few days in the reflection episode. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies.